Welcome to the Kids Corner, where we explore sensory processing, development, and play with purpose as it pertains to eating, sleeping, playing, and growing. On this podcast, we will educate you on the lesser-known topics, give practical tips and tricks to help elevate your practice, and provide resources for families and caregivers. We are your hosts. I'm Bean, the co-founder of Reu and a recovering paraplegic. And I'm Nancy, a kinesiologist specializing in pediatrics, facilitating learning and development through movement and play therapies. Today we're talking to Marin Barrows. She is from Spruce Grove, Alberta. She's currently practicing as a consultant for the blind and visually impaired out in Spruce Grove, like we mentioned. She is a sibling of a younger brother who is blind. She has been involved in the field of visual impairment, both personally and professionally, for most of her life, with a background in neuropsychology and education. Marin is especially passionate about working with children who have cortical visual impairment and finding ways of working collaboratively across specializations in order to ensure that these students have access to AAC devices. So today we're talking about CVIs. Welcome, Marin. Thank you for having me. All right, why don't you dive into a little bit more about who you are and your background? Sure. So you covered a lot of the bases in the introduction. I guess I started this journey as a sibling. When I was seven or eight, my brother Ben was born. So I actually have two younger brothers. One was four years younger than me. One was eight years younger than me. And everything kind of was sort of normal. Both of them were born very, very premature. And they were born from a different dad. So my mom and dad had me, then divorced. My mom remarried my stepdad and had these two these two boys. Eric was the, the one that was born first and then Ben. And you know, like I said, premature births, but everything seemed to be sort of okay. Otherwise, they both made full recoveries from the NICU, they came home, they were meeting their milestones, things were kind of going okay, air quotes. As things with preemies do, they were like, really, really like micro preemies for the time. So, you know, three pounds, two pounds, those kinds of things. So it's a really big deal that they even survived back in the 80s. But I, as a young person, little person, I didn't know any different. And I was thrilled to have brothers and, and away we all went. And then, you know, there were some initial kind of red flags with Eric, the first brother. So they were in doctors and ended up in an ophthalmology office. And, you know, he said, well, there's some progressive eye disease here. We need to do something about that. Let me check your other son because Ben was, had been born by then. And, and it actually was way more se- uh, severe in Ben. And my parents did 31 trips to Boston for eye surgery that was very specialized at the time at the the Mass Eye and Ear Hospital. And the end result was the middle brother, Eric, ended up losing the vision in one of his eyes and the younger brother ended up losing the vision in both of his eyes. So both my parents, my mom and my stepdad are teachers. And my mom's response to this kind of crisis situation once the medical crisis kind of had passed because these 31 operations took place over the first, you know, two, two and a half years of his life. So by the time he was three, three and a half, he had no, no vision at all. My mom's response was to try and learn more, try and understand more. And my parents went to a conference for parents that was put on by CNIB and saw a whole bunch of people who were blind doing really cool things and were very inspired. And my mom decided to do her master's in special ed and with a a specialization in vision and off she went. And then eventually my dad did the same thing. And then eventually I did the same thing as an adult. So I always joke around that it's a family business, but I'm actually serious because (laughs) because we all work in the field, literally. Both my parents were retiring this June actually. Anyway, both of my brothers have since passed away. They've passed away in the last couple of years. You know, after all this long journey, it turns out they had a very rare medical condition called Coates Plus Syndrome. So, you know, while none of this directly has anything to do with CVI, what it definitely has to do with is my ability to, uh, or desire, I guess, both desire and ability to work with families who have complex situations, complex kids and and their siblings, etc. Because I really understand the lived perspective of that and all of the medical traumas and interventions and etc. That, that can come along with that because it happens to the whole family, as I can directly attest to. 
So as a kiddo, my family was very involved in the vision world. We all volunteered, you know, at parent-run organizations and CNIB. And I used to run kids camps for, for students that were visually impaired. And so that's happening. The blindness stuff is happening, kind of just part of my world, super normal to me. But I also had a real interest in the brain and in psychology. So when I did get to university, my first degree, as you said, was in neuropsych. And I decided, though, that that wasn't going to be good for me because I didn't like the Western approach to to psychology and, and treating psychological conditions. So I did a whole bunch of other things. I traveled. I worked at an outdoor education center. And eventually I took a job as an education assistant working in a classroom with kids with severe disabilities, which... Now, here's my first kind of introduction to the world of CVI, because I'm pretty sure that every kid in that class, and there's 15 of them, had CVI to some to some degree. But the, the students that were quite visually impaired, that seemed to be a really easy match for me or a really easy fit. And right away, it was super clear that this is could be or you know should be maybe something that I would pursue. So the following year, I enrolled in my ed degree as an after degree. So that's a two-year program and a master's degree in teaching students who are blind and visually impaired at the same time. And one was at the U of A and one was at Mount St. Vincent in Halifax. And I did both of those programs at the same time. So that's insanity for the <laughs> anybody listening. Totally not recommended. I had 8 million people advising me that this is not recommended, but I managed to do it. But through those courses, and especially through the master's, I ended up having even more exposure to kids with CBI because one of my practicums was at a facility in Edmonton where kids who are very medically complex actually live and go to school at the facility. So I was I was working every day, all day, kind of with kids with CBI. I mean, I was really starting to understand Dr. Christine Roman, her CBI range that was just being published in, in the late, it was around 2007, 2008, this time when this was happening. And I, I had her book and I was starting to understand how to do assessments and these kinds of things. So I've been consulting in the field since 2008. I also had my son in 2008. <laughs> So for the first five years, I was part-time kind of contracting and doing a lot of government work. But after that, when he started school, I kind of went back to work full-time and I've had a a full-time caseload since 2014. And what I realized as soon as I got out in the field, initially my caseload was really spread out. I had kids as far away as Hinton and up to Athabasca and over to Fox Creek, so big geographic area. And I noticed that a lot, a lot, a lot of my students had CVI and uh, I got a lot of practice uh, with the CVI range tool and doing that assessment. But the other thing I realized is that not every one of my students that I was seeing was fitting onto that range. So I want to talk, I guess, a little bit more about that in this conversation about assessment and, and when to use which tool and, and what does cortical visual impairment CVI range look like versus more of a, a, a cerebral or a neurological visual impairment. Anyway, and you also mentioned AAC in the introduction. And what I realized a couple of years ago, after listening to a speaker that came to Edmonton, who is named Linda Burkhart, she came to Edmonton and and really was talking about complex communication needs for students who have really complex disabilities and medical needs and stuff. And what I really realized through her training is that we needed to be doing more. And that so much of AAC is reliant heavily on vision that if vision is compromised, often we're not doing enough or we're not doing a great job with these students. So I started to dive into the world of AAC and pursued some more training in that. And meanwhile, continued to travel all over North America, trying to build my capacity in CVI. So between those two fields, I find myself constantly learning. I recently had the opportunity to read a report I had written just two years ago, and I I, I wish I could have a (laughs) do-over because I've learned so much even in the last two years. So hopefully that was not too long-winded, but that's how I got to, to be here today talking to you. Wow, that's an amazing story. And I love that you're just so passionate what you do. It just exudes from, you know, your story that you this is where, what you love to do. So why don't we dive a little bit more into what exactly is CVI? You mentioned the difference between cerebral and cortical visual impairment. So why don't we start there? Sure. So cortical visual impairment is, I'll use some air quotes if, you know, we can't see me in this forum, but I mean, I use air quotes a lot when I talk about this because the truth is, is that there isn't really a consensus in the field about any of this, to be honest. But I would say, generally speaking, in North America, we tend to use the term cortical visual impairment. And in Europe and other places, they tend to use, they say cerebral, I would say cerebral, but they tend to use the term cerebral. And you know, ironically, they have the same acronym CVI. 
But again, I started to kind of really get the sense a couple of years ago, probably three years ago, that there was, you know, some discrepancies or some disagreement in the field. I was getting the sense through some of the the resources and the materials out there that we shouldn't just be relying on the CVI range, that if we were doing that, we were going to be missing kids. And, you know, there was some of these other kids we needed to be paying attention to that really did have visual impairment. And so I was, again, I was very confused about this until I, I ended up going to an AER conference. So I'll try to to avoid acronyms. And if I use them, I'll tell you what they are. AER is basically a, a vision rehab organization for professionals that's mostly American, but it has an international following. So I'm a member of that in the Canadian chapter. And they have conferences, big international conferences every couple of years. So I went down to the States in, in 2018, because I saw that they were having a full day pre-conference and they use the term neurological visual impairment. So as soon as I saw that, I knew I needed to go. I was like, okay, these guys are trying to move away from these confusing C words <laughs> and I need to know about this. So the other interesting piece is that Dr. Christine Roman, who I've already mentioned, who developed the CVI range, which is the primary educational assessment tool in our field that I was trained in and, and used for 10 years, she wasn't on the docket. It was a whole bunch of other people whose names I didn't know. And so that also kind of piqued my curiosity. So I went to the conference and the whole day ended up being about really trying to push out of this term and this cortical world. And even Dr. Roman herself in her latest, she's republished her book. She says cortical visual impairment and cerebral visual impairment aren't the same. She would say cortical visual impairment is a subset Uh, very specific characteristics underneath a broader scope or umbrella term of cerebral visual impairment. So where it gets, again, sticky and complicated is, so how do we determine who goes on which caseload? And how do we determine which kids get service? And again, this, this is a big, big question that we have not figured out, but we are trying to figure that out. Or I I feel like I'm at the front line, literally (laughs) in the trenches, trying to figure that out as I, as I go. And, and I've, you know, been exploring other assessment tools. So that term cerebral visual impairment, that would be coming out of, you know, Dr. Gordon Dutton. He's an ophthalmologist out of Scotland. He, his website is the CVI Scotland website. So they're doing a lot of the work on the cerebral side. So I really like to limit the the term cortical visual impairment if I'm talking about Dr. Roman's work, because that's kind of how she uses it. And so I'm trying to kind of respect those two terms. Does that help? Is that clear? Clear as mud? <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like there's two big names out there in terms of the CVI world, and they both have their own, I guess, coined terms. So mm-hmm. Dr. Dutton is the cerebral visual impairment, and Dr. Roman is the cortical visual impairment, if I'm understanding that. Correctly. I would say that's true. And within each of those camps, I mean, Dr. Christine Roman did, like I said, is really quite known because she has developed this assessment tool and written a whole bunch of textbooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Dutton ha- shares that stage, I would say, with a whole bunch of uh, really elite uh, researchers who, you know, a whole bunch of them have continue to move that work forward in different ways, right? So there's neuroscientists and other ophthalmologists and other other people trying to really try and pull this apart and say, like Dr. Dutton would say, if anything has happened to the brain at all that we know about, we should rule it in. We should be trying to make sure that vision hasn't been negatively impacted. He's trying to catch everybody. And the reason for that is because the latest research out of Scotland is actually pointing towards the fact that CVI isn't low incidence. Dr. Kathy Williams and a bunch of other people published a a study recently that said that CVI is as present or as prominent as one in 30 students, school-age students in Scotland. So that's a crazy, crazy statistic. Again, I'm I'm in the field of low incidence. That is my work. So I don't have the capacity as a, as a teacher consultant ever to see that many kids. So where do we draw the line? And if it's not me seeing those kids and doing assessments for those kids, who is doing it? And how do we, we close that gap? So it's, it's a complicated question. I actually, myself, I like the term neurological because it rules everybody. In. <laughs> and well, once they're ruled in, we can figure out how to, how to serve them. But I, I think we really do need to rule them in. So that's definitely my bias in this field. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the neurological just is more all-encompassing, right? Definitely. doesn't matter if you have the cerebral or cortical diagnosis, it's just neurological. Right, and let's figure out what it means. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Do yeah. you find there's more one versus the other here in Canada that's um, favored? Well, here's what I, I think a lot of people's journeys is similar to my journey, where as I, I found out about this cortical stuff, I found out about the range, I started to see how this range could really help my students Because what this tool does is it really helps you get specific about the student. One of my favorite, favorite, favorite expressions in this field, the field of CVI, is that if you meet one student with CVI, you meet one student with CVI. Meaning because of neurological diversity, we can't just, you know, oh, here's a CVI strategy that's going to work for your student or your child. No, it's not. Because every student is different because we're talking about the brain, right? And what the CVI range really excels at as an assessment tool is it really customizes your approach to intervention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you want to dive into Dutton's different profiles? Sure. So, so this is another kind of thing that I, that I came across when I was researching this topic. So he really distinguishes between these three categories, he calls them. So he says there's, there can be children with profound visual impairments due to CVI. And in my experience, those children are often more likely to be scorable on the range. So if vision has been been very, very impacted and it's very obvious, usually these kids are not using their vision well. Often we this is a student we could potentially use the CVI range for. The second category that Dutton talks about is kids who have functionally useful vision and also cognitive challenge challenges. They likely have widespread neurological impact to the brain, but it's possible that these kids have 20-20 acuity. So this is a really contentious issue for in my work and in the you know, the, the the low vision work is because often to activate vision services, that's one of the numbers that we use to rule kids in or out. We we say if they have at an acuity of 20 over 70 or significantly reduced visual fields, then they qualify for services. But if they don't, they don't, right? But here's a student now who has 20-20 acuity, but neurological vision challenges, meaning they're not using their tip, their vision well or typically and they don't qualify based on this definition. So I think this is one of the things that's been called into question is what, how do we dis- decide who, who gets services and who doesn't? And Dutton's third category is children with functionally useful vision who perform at or near their typical academic age level. So these students are the most likely to be missed because it seems like everything's going okay. One of my favorite CVI stories, I went at this AER conference that was down in the States in Reno. I attended a session that was about a specific boy who, you know, he he walked, he talked, he did school, he was very musical, all these things, but he had all these unexplained challenges. He had a high, high anxiety. He had a really hard time, you know, actually the biggest red flag was when he was about 15, 16, and they were trying to get him ready to drive and they put him in the car and they drove around the block and they went a different way than they normally go and he couldn't find his way home. And his mom's like, well, that's not normal. So anyway, on and on and on, they go to doctor after doctor after doctor. Everybody's saying he's fine or or he has learning disability or whatnot. And she just knew that they weren't on to it. But he ended up getting into this study out of Harvard with Dr. Maribit and Dr. Bauer. They're studying CVI with fMRI technology. And he walked out of that study with three or four different CVI diagnoses, meaning visual processing challenges. And this is a guy who needs a white cane to get around. So he has 20-20 acuity if you take him to an optometry clinic, typical normal acuity, but his brain doesn't allow him to navigate the world. He's not seeing what the rest of us are seeing. And so these are the kids that I'm really concerned that we're missing. Because CVI is an asymptomatic condition. The person who is living with CVI will never be able to tell you what they're not seeing because they don't know. They don't know what they're missing. <laughs> so anyway, vision perception is an interesting topic. So those are the, the three categories for Dutton. Yeah. And now that we're talking about uh, the symptoms, and I find it interesting that you say it's, it's almost like uh, invisible. There's almost no symptoms. So I guess as a parent or as somebody from the outside looking in, are there any um, red flags that there might be a possibility of CVI? Definitely. So right away, Dr. Roman is actually piloting a, a NICU newborn study, a screening study that has started to really try and figure out right from birth if babies 
could potentially have CVI because birth trauma of any kind is a red flag or preterm birth is a red flag. So a, a lot of things that happen right away. So, you know, babies with CP, babies who have had uh, any kind of metabolic disorder or a hypoglycemic incident or anything around birth is a red flag we should make sure that everything's okay. So babies who end up in the NICU often are there because they're either early or something has happened. And those babies, the ones who are flagging positive for CVI, don't react to light in the same way. They don't defend against light. So a newborn baby who defends against light probably doesn't have CVI and a baby that doesn't defend against light probably does. So that's one of the things in her screening tool. I just think that's really interesting. She showed us when she came to Edmonton last, she showed us some videos of, of what that looks like. But often parents, you know, there's lots of kids I've worked with who had a, a stroke in utero and nobody knew, right? So really around six months, if the baby's eyes, because of course, all newborns don't have great vision, you know, most parents know that the baby's eyes are going cross-eyed and they're, they're really not focusing very well. But around by the time they're six months to a year, for sure, their eyes should be looking, you know, that triangle of reference is how language and communication really starts to, to come on board. So if the babies aren't really using their vision typically, if the eyes aren't doing what the eyes are supposed to be doing, if there's eye movement disorders, that's a real red flag. As the kids get older, they may have a hard time with, uh, you know, orientation mobility. So I had a, a student who was like two and a half, three years old, who couldn't cross an open room. He ran off curbs. He would, he couldn't find his mom in a crowd. So I always like to say that if the eyes aren't doing what their eyes are supposed to be doing, the student probably isn't seeing what the other students are seeing, right? So that's a real, that's a giant red flag for me and one that is really highly associated with CVI. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and now can we talk a little bit about the diagnosis? I know we've talked about like in the NICU and stuff, but mm-hmm. when they get to you, I guess at that point, how is CVI diagnosed or it, how are they even referred to you? Yeah. So here's my big disclaimer with a capital D. I am a teacher, so I am not a, I'm not a diagnostician. I'm not a doctor. I am not in charge of CVI diagnosis. What I am in charge of is functional vision assessment. And so that's my training. That's my background, which basically means, okay, here's the vision diagnosis or the vision assessment from the optometrist or the ophthalmologist. What does that mean in the functional environment? What does that mean in a school environment? However, what I will say about that is in Canada, we have a, a atrocious record of accurately diagnosing this condition. And the reason for that is because the ophthalmologists, as brilliant as they are, and we have some of the best in the world, literally in the city, this is not what they are trained in. This is not what they do. They are trained in eyes, right? So they are brilliant at eyes and eye surgeries and all of, you know, magical, what they can do with eyes and medicine. So much so that ocular visual impairment is going down and down and down as neurological visual impairment goes up and up and up. But really and truly, a neuro-ophthalmologist is your best bet because they are trained kind of in both. So I would, if you are suspicious of that, I would fight for an appointment with a neuro-ophthalmologist. And I would uh, do some of your own, you know, if you haven't gotten in front of somebody who knows about this, who's an OT or who's somebody like me who's trained in this, I would do some of your own research to say, here's why I think this is going on. You know, there's this symptom or this red flag or this characteristic and this, and kind of almost make a case. Because what one of the things that I work closely with one of the neuro-ophthalmologists in Edmonton, I have a great working relationship with him. And I often we share reports back and forth. And he has said to me, I can't assess this in my clinic. I don't know what it looks like functionally. <laughs> You're in a much better position to figure out what this looks like in the natural environment and what this looks like in a school environment and what this looks like in a home environment, right? So if you document it for me and you give me a really good picture about how this is impairing the student's access to the student's function, I will, from a medical perspective, I can, I can meet you. I can collaborate with you. But if we don't give them that information, it's really challenging for them to to make that that diagnosis. So it's coming. We're shifting the needle slowly in the medical world, very, very slowly. Actually, this neuro-ophthalmologist that I just referenced did a ground rounds talk on CVI, him and another doctor for all the ophthalmologists in the city. So they all know about it. But some of them have just blatantly said, this isn't what I do. This is not... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is not for me, right? So it's it's a challenge for sure. It's an area of challenge. 
Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it's a bit of advocacy on the part of the parents and it's finding the right people to be in your corner to help support you into that diagnosis. For sure. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. All right. Can we talk a little bit about how CVI is different from other visual impairments? Sure. So typically when you think visual impairment, people think about eyes. So they think about ocular causes. So they think about blindness. One of the things that's interesting about this field is there's a whole bunch of misnomers already to begin with. So legal blindness is having an acuity of 2200, which is actually still quite a bit of vision, right? They can see quite a bit. So it always shocks people. Like this, these are people who can read print often, who may or may not need a white cane to get around. They may only need it in certain circumstances. And yet we use this term legal blindness. So it's kind of a confusing world to begin with. But really when we're distinguishing between CVI and ocular visual impairment is we're saying the primary cause of the trouble with visual access is related to brain versus eyes. Often the challenge though is students have both, right? So something has happened, they have a, you know, some kind of medical condition, or they've had some sort of brain injury where there's actual damage to the eyes, and there's damage to the brain. So then pulling it apart becomes really tricky. And that's why you would need a, for sure, a TVI. So that's the ocular person, that would be me, looking at visual access, looking at print sizes, you know, how do we, how are we going to give them access to information? How are we going to make sure that they're safe in their environment? How are we going to make sure that we, you know, can teach them language and communication and all these things? How are we going to give them access? The strategies for ocular visual impairments are quite different than for those that are neurological. So it would be awesome. And we are in our province, one of the things we really tried to advocate for at a provincial level was that everybody, every TVI, there's about 30 of us all told in the whole province, was that every TVI get CVI endorsed, meaning they did the Dr. Roman's CVI range assessment tool. They did the course that basically says that they're authorized or certified to to do that assessment with fidelity. I don't think we've gotten everybody to do it, but we've gotten a significant amount of, of TVIs to do it. So the TVIs know about this. C, CNIB knows about this. More and more OTs know about this. More and more neuropsychologists know about this. So these are all people that would, you know, be able to help you with their neurological piece. But the tricky part is if there's the ocular piece also, you would definitely want a TVI involved to help you kind of pull apart those two different access methods, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm, for sure. So it sounds like, you know, there's definitely the reason for vision impairment can be from the brain or from the eyes, and it can also be in combination. Uh, one can come first, another one can come second, or it can come at the same time. And it's hard to tease that out. It's really hard to tease that out. Exactly. Mm-hmm. D- would that really change your approach um, if you had both together? Definitely. And it's one of those things where I, I kind of le- had to learn the lesson the really hard way <laughs> because we would want, this is where it, why ophthalmology reports and stuff become so important. We would want to know, let's say and this has happened to me because it's very hard sometimes to get med- access to medical information. Let's say I would go to see a new student and they would have potentially symptoms of or red flags for CVI, like severe CVI, like they would be a student that I would use the CVI range for. But I didn't know their ophthalmology information. And so let's say I would say, oh, well, we could expect that their vision might improve. Let's do this, this, and this. And maybe we could get their brain to kind of start to, because the brain is plastic and the the person can learn to use their vision, let's start to do these things. And then you find out down the road that actually they have really, really significant damage to their retinas. (laughs) They're probably not going to learn to see with damage to their retinas, right? So you would really want to make sure that you had both of those pieces of information as a as a good example. So I'm at the place now where, you know, I've learned that lesson. So there's absolutely no way that I'm going to enter into assessment without the information from the ophthalmologist. The other simple thing is, you know, how many times in this early, early in my career, how many times did I forget to ask the question if the student had been checked for glasses? <laughs> right? That's a really simple thing that we need to make sure it has happened. So, but this is one of the challenges of working in a, a siloed system, right? So information transfer between optometry and ophthalmology and medicine and then health and education is really challenging and tricky. So it's one of those things that we need to get better at and we need to really prioritize, I guess. It takes a lot longer to be gathering all that information, but it's, it's super important. Mm-hmm. Tough lessons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, I mean, it's all important stuff to know. And I think that's in part why we do these types of podcasts so more people can get access to the information earlier. 
For sure. All right. Do we want to dive into a little bit about the specific characteristics associated with CVI? So I know there's the Dutton version and there's the Roman version. So you can feel free to talk about the similarities and differences of those. Sure. So when I was, again, kind of getting ready for this podcast, I actually just pulled out a bunch of slides that I put together. To I do, I do a lot of PD in this area. And it was, Dutton actually, I don't think he intentionally even maybe published these as 10. He doesn't say, I have 10 characteristics. I kind of pulled them out of some of the the work that he has written. Um, So he really, truly, if you go onto CVI Scotland website, there is a listing of 25 known ways that vision can be neurologically impacted. So actually there's 25 characteristics or there's 25, you know, ways that that we know vision can be impacted in the brain. But to, to put them into 10, because I like to kind of compare and contrast, like you said, number one would be an impairment of acuity, contrast, and or color. Number two would be visual field deficits. So either he says on one side or lower fields. Number three would be impaired perception of movement. Number four would be difficulty navigating complexity of the visual scene. So that word complexity is an important one. Number five would be impairment of visually guided movement. And what that basically means is being able to look and reach at the same time or accurately use your reach and vision at the same time. Impaired visual attention is number six. Number seven is behavioral difficulties or distress in a crowded or busy environment. Number eight would be impaired ability to recognize what is being looked at. Number nine would be illusions such as persisting vision, which he calls palinopsia. And number 10 is visual hallucinations, often associated with seizures. So those are his 10. Dr. Roman's 10, and these are more commonly known, especially in North America. And these are the 10 characteristics that she has used to build her assessment tool. So basically, when you're using her tool, you would basically evaluate every single one of these characteristics, you know, as it shows up for the student, give them a rating, and then it translates into a number out of 10. So her 10 are color. And what she means by that is students are often attracted to a brighter color, usually red or yellow in the earlier phases. And then it can be just, you know, more bright, solid colors later on. Movement. And what she means by that is movement usually helps to activate or trigger visual awareness or looking. Latency, which is usually that there's a delay between when you present the stimulus and when the student looks. Field preferences, so similar as Dutton, that lower fields are often not great and often one side or the other will be better. Visual complexity, so she has that same one, meaning challenged by visual complexity. So the more items there are in a visual scene, the less the person will be able to use their vision effectively. Light, and what she means by this is attraction to light. So this is one of the things that troubled me initially with her her tool is I actually have quite a few students who have neurological vision challenges who are light sensitive or photophobic. So I kind of said, well, now what? You know, if they don't really what Dr. Roman says, if, if you're if you don't have all 10 characteristics, really shouldn't be using the tool, right? So she when I talked to her about that directly, she said, well, just don't use that, that characteristic. So I was like, okay, well, I don't know. So basically, students can either be really attracted to light, and it can help promote vision, or they can be photophobic. And we need to be mindful of that. Distance viewing. So she's saying distance viewing is often not great. And basically, as the student progresses on the range or as they increase their vision or learn to use their vision, they'll be able to see farther and farther away. That's also really related to complexity because when you get closer to something, all of a sudden the visual field is smaller. Like the the number of items in the field is, is a lot smaller. Novelty. So what that means is usually students are better at looking at or interpreting or engaging with things that that are known to them. And usually simple is better. Visually guided reach, meaning same thing as Dutton was talking about that visually guided movement. So those things happening at the same time, how integrated is that? And then she evaluates reflexes. So reflex to tap on the bridge of the nose or a a visual threat. So a hand coming towards the face. So you can hear some similarities and you can hear some differences. Something that's really interesting is I was giving this talk to a group of OTs and PTs and SLPs. And I was, it was only an hour. And I was, you know, doing as a, as a professional development workshop. And I, I mentioned these characteristics. I gave a few quick strategies And one of the PTs followed up with me and said, you know, I have this seven month old baby. Uh, He's really not using his vision. I think he has CVI. I put some of those strategies in place and he started looking. (laughs) So what's so cool about Dr. Roman's work in particular is, especially if the student is er very young and early, you know, early in the, in the journey, 
these strategies, you can pick them up right away and put them to work. And the student will, who has never really looked and made eye to object contact before will all of a sudden do it. You know, you put a bright red, simple object against a black background and boom, they will look right. So this is a big deal. Her work is a big deal that has definitely changed lives. And on, on the Dutton front, you know, he is wanting to help every child that has been impacted in any way by vision person perceptual or processing challenges and there of which there are many many so I just want it you know kind of be stated or known that I'm not in either camp <laughs> I think both of their work is important and I, again I, I prefer the term neurological because I feel like we need to figure out how how and when to use what what tool and how do we help as many kids as possible so Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that description of the differences between Dutton and Roman. I think it definitely is interesting to see the similarities and differences because there is that overlap and that consistency through both researchers. At this point, can we talk a little bit about the phases of CBI? I know you just kind of briefly mentioned it in there. Do you want to go a little bit more into that? Sure. So if you're going to use the CVI range tool, I already kind of said you, you're going to use those 10 characteristics and you're going to, going to look at the, the tool and give a student a rating essentially on each one of those characteristics, you know, zero, zero to one, essentially. So it, it says zero to 0.25 to 0.5 to 0.75 to one. And you're going to, let's say I'm evaluating the student for, for color and the, the parent says to me, oh, they only really like Elmo and they <laughs> really only things that are red. So that's going to be quite a low, if they're really limited to color, that's going to be a lower rating. And I'm going to do that with every one of the characteristics. And so basically, if they come out with a number, if I add up all those numbers, the 0.25s and the 0.5s, et cetera, if I come up with a number that's zero to three on the range out of 10, that's phase one. So what that means is the child is essentially learning to look. So they're, it's really obvious that they're not using their vision well. They're not really making eye to object contact. They're not doing that triangulation for learning communication and pointing. Like they're just not doing a lot of that stuff. If I get a number between four and six on the range, that's phase two. And that means the child is beginning to integrate vision with function. So you're getting more consistent visual attention. You're getting more consistent eye to object contact. Maybe they're able to see a little bit farther away from themselves. Maybe they're they're not as rigid about what they will look at and when they will look at things and you know the environment in which they will be able to use their vision. So there's a little less rigidity there, but there's still a lot of inconsistency. If I get a score of seven plus, the child is learning to correctly interpret what the eyes are seeing. So that's really when things start to get where, again, this is one of the things that caused me to look beyond the range is, is now what, right? So now I'm air quotes, the student's CVI appears to be mild, but what does that mean, right? What, what are they still really struggling with? How can we give them access to learning materials that they're going to be able to see in the long term? And so what are some other assessment tools potentially that I need to consider to try and figure that out? So once that student is in phase three, often I'm looking at other other assessment tools, whether they can talk, you know, there's some there's some for talking kids that I would use. There's some for students that don't speak that I might use. There's some for specifically for early childhood that are normed against, you know, other kindergarten students that I, that I might use. So really trying to see like, what do I need to do? What do I need to tell the teacher? What do I need to tell the parents so that we can optimize this child's visual access to, to their learning materials. Mm -hmm. And so are these phases directly associated with Dr. Roman's work? They are. Cool. And that's the bit, the phases that are used throughout all of North America and Canada. Yeah, so if you're using the CVI range, you will get a number on one of one to ten, and this student will be in phase one, phase two, phase three. So I guess something that we really, I've kind of briefly mentioned it, but I didn't spend a lot of time going into it is, if your child does have a diagnosis of cortical or cerebral visual impairment, the thing to be really super mindful of is that this is something that potentially could improve, right? So if we start to maybe never totally resolve or never totally, you know, the child may never ever achieve typical 100% normal vision, but we may expect them to learn to have better visual access and learn about themselves, right? So one of my very favorite resources that I share with families is a lady, her name is Nicola McDowell, and she's from New Zealand. And she had a brain injury when she was 16. And, you know, she made a fairly good recovery from that. She has hemianopsia, which means half of her visual field is gone. But, you know, she, she was a TVI. She does the same job that I do. She writes and walks and talks and all these things. And Dr. Dutton came to Australia to give it, or New Zealand, I guess, sorry, to, 
came there to talk about CVI and she was sitting in the audience saying, oh my gosh, she's talking about me. <laughs> so she approached him and she told him her, her story and he did an assessment and he said, oh yeah, you have, you have CVI. And she said it totally changed her life. And so one of my favorite things I share with families is this 20 minute YouTube talk that she talks about what it's like to live with CVI. Because I really think one of the best things that could set our kids free is teaching them about themselves. Right. So something that I, I talk to people about, you know, all of us can kind of relate to vision processing as a construct because all of us have a threshold for vision processing. So the example I always say is when you're driving in your car and you know where you're going and you're drinking your coffee and your kids are in their back and the radio's on and everything's fine and you don't have any trouble driving your car. But the moment that you have to find an address or there's a traffic incident that you have to navigate, the first thing that you do is put your coffee down and shut off the radio and tell your kids to be quiet because <laughs> you need to pay attention, right? You need to activate your visual processing system in a more intentional way. So that's your threshold, right? It's very circumstantial. And the thing that I like to try and kind of invite people into is people with CVI also have that same threshold, but it's lower. So they work hard to use the vision that they have. And she talks about this brilliantly. So CVI is super dynamic. It can be, you know, really, you can have really good visual access in one environment at a certain time of day and go to another environment and it'd be very, very, you know, maybe sensory overstimulate, like loud, very visually busy. You might be super tired because you you were busy all day and all of a sudden you really can't use your vision well at all. And she explains what that's what it's like to live like that. So it's one of my favorite things to share with families because I think it's very hopeful in in terms of we can help people recover and we can help people learn to live with. But the best thing we can do as caregivers and as you know support people in their lives is help them understand themselves, right? Help them understand what it means to have CVI. So yeah, that's really cool. I didn't know some of that stuff. So I, I, I mean, I'm learning new things already. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Can we touch on some of the strategies for CVI? So for the different phases, are there certain things that you might do with, I mean, obviously everyone's so individualized. I don't know if you can generalize. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I you're right. One of the things that's really tricky about giving strategies or specific stuff like that is, you know, that individuality. One of the things I used to joke about it when I give talks at conferences and stuff is, you know, I, and you see this with AAC devices, for example, everybody just turns on the high contrast symbols and said, there, I did CVI, we're good. Or they put pom-poms and say, yeah, I gave you some pom-poms and those shiny things and we're good. So I think that <laughs> that's not doing CVI intervention, right? We really do need to figure out what's happening for the, for the students. So that starts with assessment and assessment should be dynamic and ongoing meaning you should be trying to gather as much information as possible from everybody that's working with the child in the school and or the home. The home is the most important. They know the, the student the best. Lots and lots of time spent observing, uh, if possible, and then monitoring and, and tracking. So, you know, again, that's, that's the beginning place and, and your interventions or your strategies will come out of that. Generally speaking, the more severe or the lower on the range, if you're going to use that tool, the more you're going to need to control everything. You're going to need to control the environment in a sensory way. So how much light, how much sound. You're going to need to control the background. You're going to need to really, really pare down that complexity as much as possible and make the things that you're presenting to the child as salient or as obvious as possible by you know using the same objects or using the colors that you you think that the child can see best using really simple things those are the you know those are the earlier strategies that are you know i would say that is almost for every child in the earlier phases right they they really need as much support as we can give them to learn to look or to have the best chance of seeing what we're showing them as they go on and up through the phases it's harder to give general recommendations because some kids for example can't see faces where some kids can see faces right so some kids have a hard time auditory processing so they will like I had a student who every time he'd start talking to him he'd put his head down and close his eyes <laughs> right because he couldn't look and listen at the same time so you just I think it's really really important that you're working as a multidisciplinary team to figure out those assessment pieces so that you can customize the approach as much as possible Another general thing to think about, especially in a classroom setting, as I, as I share with people, like for all kids, really, 
too much on the walls or too much visual complexity is not is not generally good. It's not generally better. One of my favorite resources that I share with school teams also is a simulate. This is in the list of things I'll send you is a simulation video that that simulates what it's like to have uh, dorsal stream dysfunction, which is that's a Dutton term, meaning vision complexity is a challenge. They have a hard time with complex visual arrays. And so with, with this dorsal stream dysfunction simulation, it, it kind of uses a, a 3D virtual reality sort of simulation to, to show here's a busy classroom, here's what the student would see, here's a less busy classroom, and here's what the student would see. So I just think it's a great thing to consider about like how can I turn down the air quotes volume of the visual array in the environment that the student is in. A lot of my parents will tell me that their kids, as soon as they get home from school, they're done and they'll go into their room and their rooms are really visually simple and quiet and dark. And they'll just hang out in there just to try and recharge their, their visual brain battery. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sounds like kind of just a brain overload. They're having to work extra hard to process all that information. It's just tiring. Definitely. Something that also Nicola talks about in her her 20 minute video, and then they they write about it on the CVI Scotland website is is the idea of a CVI meltdown. So sometimes it can look like behavior, right? So the student is really just visually overwhelmed or overstimulated and their vision is shutting down, or they're afraid because they can't process what's happening anymore. And they will have a temper tantrum, they'll just kind of lose it. And often this will be in busy shopping malls or, you know, grocery stores, it can be birthday parties, like loud, but this isn't every kid, right? I have another student who her favorite thing in the world is to go to like a volleyball game. (laughs) You know, she used her AAC device to say, stop taking me out of the classroom. I want to be with the kids, right? So this is not a kid who seems overly stressed by a lot of sensory stimulation. So it's not every kid. This is the thing, right? So we really, really have to be as mindful as possible. But, you know, if your child, it does seem to be really stressed by these novel or overstimulating environments, it could be a vision processing challenge. That's something to kind of think about. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like these strategies are all very individualized. There's no one size fits all treatment plan. It's all unique to the person. As much as possible, it is for sure. And what I like, there's so much out there for parents. PCVIS is a, a wonderful organization that has done a brilliant, brilliant job building a website for parents. So I often will send North American parents to, to that website. The CVI Scotland website has a lot of information. As you're reading through some of this information, if you're a parent, you will be able to see your child. You will be able to say, oh, I'm going to try that. Or, oh, that sounds like that might work for my kiddo. So I think... Parents always will know once they start to sift through some of this information what might help their their child. I just think they're they're the best resources, right? They that's my advice for parents is, is start to learn and educate yourself as much as possible because it really makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference to how they get around in the world or how they access information or how they learn communication. It just has it it impacts everything. Mm-hmm. And then we talk about the world in general. What are some common misconceptions about CVI that you've kind of encountered as your career has progressed? Well, I would say one of the most common misconceptions is that it's not as common as, as we think it is, or it's it's far more common than we originally thought. Even this last study that I just got, that's, that's you know, I had heard two years ago that there was three students with CVI in every school, and that was blowing my mind. Now the study is saying there's one in 30. So one of the explanations for that, and I already kind of alluded to the fact that the ocular numbers are going way, way down because of medical science, but the neurological numbers are going way, way up for the same reason, right? So our magical doctors are saving very, 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 very premature babies and super complicated babies that used to not survive. And now they are surviving and they're in our schools and they're in our homes and we love them dearly, but we we have to figure this, this vision piece out because 40% of the brain serves vision and therefore if the brain's been impacted, probably CVI has is there somewhere, right? So we need to kind of figure that out. So that's my my number one kind of thing is is that you know it's far 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 more more common than than we think and every child with any kind of neurological anything we should be looking for it that's a dutton kind of premise we should be ruling it in before we rule it out another common misconception and it's a quote from dr mary morse that i heard at that conference where that boy went into the harvard study and came out with the diagnosis of three different cvis that were quite severe is that there's no such thing as mild cvi <laughs> Meaning, if your if your vision processing system has been impacted, that's probably going to matter. 
it's probably going to impact your ability for for driving or potentially reading or potentially just being in the world, right? So we need to we need to do a better job of understanding that to help the person kind of learn to live with with whatever the consequences of it are. So again, there's thresholds, right? For everybody. And we need to to really kind of figure out where the person lives on on the thresholds to help them better understand and process information. So those are my two biggest ones for sure. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't know, honestly, how common or prevalent CVI was. I know I work with the subset of population where it's, you know, every other child has it. But in the general public, you don't necessarily think that, you know, kids going to public school, it's that prevalent. Right, for sure. I think a lot of kiddos, for example, there's a lot of overlap with kiddos on the spectrum, for example, on the ASD spectrum and CVI. A lot of those kids have vision processing challenges, a lot, not all of them. Some of them are magical. You know, I have Temple Grandin's books and she thinks in pictures. So she <laughs> she does not have CVI. She is a superstar when it comes to vision and vision processing. However, other people on the spectrum, really, I, I've worked with kiddos who are trying to use an AAC device and they actually cannot look at the device and, and press a button at the same time. So they were looking at the device, looking away, and then trying to, to, to activate the devices, right? So there are specific AAC devices that would be wonderful for those students that don't rely so heavily on vision and vision processing, right? So does that student have, I'm using air quotes, typical CVI? No, they have 20-20 acuity probably, but not typical vision processing. And it really matters, right, in terms of their access to language communication and the world. Mm-hmm. And we've mentioned AAC a bunch throughout this podcast. Do you mind just defining it a little bit real quick? Sure, 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 sure. So AAC stands for Augmentative and Alternative Communication. And often people think AAC is a device that a child would use, like a talker or a iPad device with a communication system on it. And that's only part of it. AAC is really anything that adds to. So it could be signs or gestures. It could be picture communication systems, etc., that adds to somebody's ability to use language, even utterances, you know, are part of a person's uh, person with complex communication needs profile. So AAC would be any tools and strategies that a person who has complex communication needs would use to to communicate or get their message across. Mm-hmm. And then earlier on in this podcast, you mentioned that we're really good at finding AAC devices that are visual. Are there any that are more geared towards the auditory side of things? For sure. So when I went to see Linda Burkhart give her talk, one of the things that that she really specializes in or promotes and is highly trained in is POD, which is Pragmatic Organized Dynamic Display, POD, P-O-D-D. Anyway, POD was originally developed in Australia by Gail Porter, who is an SLP. And one of the brilliant things about POD is that it's a very organized language system that can be used with alternative access modalities. So you know, I actually ended up going down to Houston to do my five-day alternative access training so that I could better understand how how pod works and how it can work for students who have limited mobility or limited vision. And so you can use it for auditory scanning. You could have it set up for auditory plus visual scanning. You could have it with tear-off symbols that you can bring closer. You can reduce the visual complexity of the visual array, et cetera, et cetera. Really relies heavily on partners. So you have a smart partner who understands how this pod system works and the system can be scanned auditorily and or visually and or both so that the students can look, listen, etc., make yeses and nos as, as the person is scanning for them. So it is one that definitely lends itself well towards kids who have AAC needs and CVI or challenges with vision. LAMP is a language acquisition through motor planning is a one that can be a high-tech app kind of device that can be run that way that lends itself a little more friendly towards people with vision challenges because it's it relies more heavily on motor planning. So, you know, even if you if you put a key guard on there, the, the whole thing can be learned just even with tact like a tactile kind of display. So those are the two that two language systems, I guess, or communication systems that that are more friendly towards people with vision challenges. For sure, ones that are highly, highly, like apps and stuff, communication apps that are highly, highly visually dynamic, that change every time you touch the page, those ones are more concerning. Again, it's not no, no, never for somebody with vision processing challenges. You have to be working with your SLP and really trying to understand how vision and 
how motor, all of it, your OT, every, it, that's a multidisciplinary team decision, but uh, some of them are definitely more friendly towards CVI and vision challenges than others. Mm, yeah, thank you for defining that. I just have a couple questions left. Do you have any advice for interacting with children with CVI? For maybe therapists out there, teachers out there, school aides, that kind of thing. What are your big things you want everybody to know? Yeah, so uh, one of my biggest things, I guess, or pieces of advice is don't assume that because the child looked at it that they know what they looked at or they understood what they saw. Even children who are verbal, we say, can you see that? And they say, yep. (laughs) That doesn't actually tell us if they saw what we think they saw, right? So if you're dealing with a child that can speak, I would say, tell me what you see. Or I would try and, you know, instead of saying, can you see this? I would say, you know, tell me what you think this is and how do you know and try and get a better sense of what they might be seeing. If a child that, that is not able to to answer me, I would definitely err on the side of maybe they didn't understand everything that I showed them. So I would be trying to maybe give them more information. And like that's where my background, I guess, dealing with people who are blind, like my brother, where I'm kind of explaining things a lot more. I'm giving more information. I, w- I would be erring on the side of giving more information about what they see. The other thing is people, and this has been reported kind of more widely now in the last couple of years, but people with CVI often have quite a bit of anxiety. And the reason why they do is because they know that they're missing stuff, but they don't know what they're missing. There's just the sense that, oh, I think I'm not, you know, I was actually just doing an assessment recently with a student with CVI and I had a, a shiny light and the handle of it was red and shiny. And I had used the light to do what we were doing. And then I put it down on the, the counter beside me. And a few minutes later, he said, oh, is that a Kit Kat bar? And he was talking about this light handle that was shiny and red. And I said, and I brought it closer to him. And I said, no, that's the light that I was showing you. But you can see why he would have made that mistake because of the shiny red. And he got so embarrassed and so anxious. And so, you know, right away, I just said, oh, that's okay. It's no big deal. You know, everybody makes mistakes. And I just tried to really, I told him, oh, you know, that's that's a totally understandable mistake shiny red is the same as Kit Kat bar and these like I tried to really put them at ease one of the things that students who are talkers who have CVI one of the things that they will do is they will start talking a blue like I'm doing now but I don't have CVI but they will start talking a blue streak because if they don't if they think they aren't going to know the answer or they're not going to be able to do it they'll just start looking away and distracting you and I actually have quite a few students who have done that and that's one of the questions on one of the screening tools that I use is does your child compensate by talking <laughs> a lot. So just just know that sometimes what you see isn't always what you get and they're not always seeing what you think they might be seeing. Those are two of my my pieces of advice. That's great advice that you gave and honestly all of your information here today was very insightful and just like Nancy said she learned something. I learned a lot too. So thank awesome. you so much for um all the information and yeah, you Nancy's right. Your passion does really it's palpable when you talk and so I can see why you're very good at what you do. Thanks. So where can people find you if they have questions or comments? Is there somewhere where they can get in contact with you? I would be happy if people would send me an email. So my email is just my name, M-A-R-E-N-B-A-R-R-O-S at gmail.com. That's probably the best way to get a hold of me. I also do mentorship for the government of Alberta right now. So basically any service provider, quite literally, I'm able to do mentorship to build capacity within that service provider. So if you're on a team, your child is on a team and people on the team aren't sure about CVI or would like to know more about CVI, they can request mentorship and you would just contact me and say, we want to access mentorship and I can get some permission from the government to come and build some capacity on the team. So that's pretty exciting. I feel really excited about that because I really feel like I would love to grow the awareness of this, especially within our OTs. That's a, that's an area of, of this work that I feel like, I mean, the OTs do, they're kind of the jack of all trades in, in this field. They, they know a lot about a lot. And I feel like if we could bump up their capacity in CVI in terms of their ability to assess and stuff like that, I think we would do a better job. I mean, especially if there's this many kids who are challenged by vision processing, I feel like they're, they're the ones that are the best equipped to move this work forward. So I'm really hoping to kind of move in that direction is to try to partner with and build some more and more capacity in OTs. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So if there's any OTs listening, yeah. <laughs> contact 
Yeah, I think that's great that you're yeah. mentoring people. That's very much needed in this, in any field. So yeah, good job. I'm glad you're doing that. For sure. Okay, well, thank you so much, Marin. We really learned a lot today, and I think our listeners are going to be very educated as well from today's episode. Thank you so much, and thank you for sharing the personal story about your brothers. I'm sorry for your loss, and it did put you on this path that you are on, and there always is always something good that comes from every tragedy. Uh, for sure. So I'm glad that you have yeah. you know, followed your passion and really made an impact in the lives of many yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a real, uh, well, you guys you guys called it. I could talk about this all day. <laughs> so thanks so much for letting me. <laughs> no problem. We really appreciate all of your education and your knowledge. So once again, thank you very much, Marin. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. As always, we would greatly appreciate if you could subscribe, leave us a five-star review, and a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as this helps us increase our reach. And stay tuned for another episode coming at you in two weeks.